Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Danny from C4C Apologetics. I'm glad you tuned in. Today, I have a very special guest interview with me. We have founder of Stand to Reasons Ministry, Greg Kokel. Greg Kokel had written, and I didn't really realize this, but this book, Tactics, a Game Plan for Discussing Your Christian Convictions, I didn't realize it's 10 years old. 10 years old. That's right. So this book right here, if, if you want to look at not just theology, if you want to look at practical ways of witnessing and evangelizing, I would highly recommend getting this book. It's got recommendations from J.P. Moreland, Gary Habermas, Frank Turk, Sean McDowell, and C4C Apologetics. But this book talks about one of the more things that he's, I guess he could say famous for or well-known for is the Columbo tactic, which is just your presentation skills are just off the charts and everything. We showed a video oh, thank here. You. And it's just amazing. <laughs> By the way, it's 11 years. That's the 10-year anniversary. It just came out a year ago. So I did see time that. Time is flying. <laughs> but in the book, he talks about not only the Columbo tactic, but he talks about just the facts, ma'am, and using that, taking the roof off. That's probably one of my favorite chapters because mm -hmm. when you're taking the roof off, you really want to take somebody's uh, faulty view to the furthest logical conclusion. Right. But you also have a part in here talking about the steamroller and the person that wants to be antagonistic mm -hmm. and how to really handle it. So if you're out there and you want to know how do I practically apply uh, methodology for evangelism, this is a great book. I actually couple this one alongside of Geisler's Conversational Evangelism, and they work fabulous hand to hand. Mm -hmm. So, Greg, I just thank you for being a part of C4C Apologetics interview today. Would you care to... Uh, just talk a little bit about yourself, ministry, anything you'd like to share for the audience. Yeah, um, I guess I'll start by saying something that may surprise a lot of people, and uh, and that is that um, my – it's funny how you get introduced at different times for things because sometimes uh, people will say, here's a guy with a great – passion for the lost and whatever and uh in different christians have different kinds of passions but that doesn't turn out to be my passion okay. uh maybe your passion maybe a lot of other and i'm glad that lots of people have it my passion is for the church actually and i was weaned uh very early as a christian when i was four months old in in the lord which was 47 years ago and that's when i began an intensive discipleship under one person that was because of the nature of the circumstances <clears throat> almost a 24-7 kind of situation. We were together all the time. And I was living in a Christian community at that time in Westwood Village by UCLA. And so I got, uh, and this particular man, Craig Englert, um, he was uh, a teacher in that community. So uh, I, I got to know Craig, he got to know me. We were both tennis players. We spent a lot of time out on the courts and a lot of time doing all kinds of stuff. And so my life was formed um, as someone else poured their life into me. And it's not just the content. <clears throat> so much of the stuff you know, Dan, is not taught as much as caught. People need to see, in a certain sense, see you in action or see the Christian, the mature Christian, in action, doing the kinds of things on a day-to-day -day basis, dealing with, hard, dealing with hardships, challenges, interacting with uh, difficult people, etc. And so then we kind of absorb that. It's the way a child absorbs what their, their parents teach them. Um, and I realize I'm like... <laughs> A lot, a lot like my own father, um, in both good uh, and bad. And the things that I'm like in him, him, especially the bad things, are not what he taught me. It's what he modeled. 
and I just kind of picked it up, okay? But this is, I'm not picking on my dad. We all do this, you know, and this is just the dynamic. And so therefore, when I had a guy in my life that was feeding the good stuff and all, not just content, but all these other things and loving me up at the same time, this really, really established my trajectory as a Christian. And so since then, I have had dozens of groups in the last 47 years of people that I'd, I've worked with, you know, I mean, and, and some whose names people would would remember, would recognize, you know, as it turned out. And I had a chance to have some tutoring response responsibility in their life or mentoring role. And actually the thing that makes me feel most satisfied is when people tell me, and they do this frequently, even at a distance, at a digital distance, basically, um, that they feel like I'm a mentor to them. And they said, well, I feel like I know you. And my response is, well, you do. I don't know you, but you know me. And so we, we can extend, in a certain sense, the virtues of mentoring uh, to a massive number of people through digital media, um, even though there's the personal relationship is not intact because of the distance, you know, and the anonymity of so many. Uh, but it is a way of leveraging what we have now uh, for a, a discipleship end. And um, and this is why it's one of the reasons that it's really important for me as a as just as an individual person, and I think more important as a person that that is getting increasing or has increased visibility, to be transparent, and to be upfront, and to let people know. Look at I'm just one of the guys. I, I'm in there with all the rest of you guys. Uh, I just, you know, I got my name on a book, but that doesn't make me any different than anybody else. just means that's the way my contribution is being made. Um, uh, but I struggle with the exact same things everybody else struggles with. And what a lot of Christians do not realize is that most of the Christians they look up to struggle with lots more. Yeah because they're in the line of fire in a much more aggressive way. And so the enemy starts going after them and they go after them in their personal life and in their finances and their relationships and their kids and their marriages and all of these places that generally and, and appropriately are not fully public, you know, because it's private life stuff. But uh, I mean, every, virtually everybody I know has had, had significant challenges in their private life. When I say no, I mean no, um, um, everybody I know professionally. So again, I mean, my, my only point is here is that, that there is a, my heart is for discipleship. My heart is for training Christians. This is what motivated um, not only the book Tactics, but also the other book, uh, The Story of Reality, which was written to help build up the body of Christ in their understanding of the big picture, but at the same time, um, be the kind of thing that could be shared with non-Christians without embarrassment, because there's not a lot of technical theology, at least it doesn't sound like technical oh, theology. Oh, yeah. There is a lot of theology in that book. And uh, I got one right here. <laughs> I'm just, because I'm a good author, I'm just going to... Oh. Well, my own dog-eared copy. Part of the reason it's dog-eared is because I, I know it sounds weird, but I read it. I, I read my own book. Pardon me? You do dog ears on the tabs, on the pages? Oh, uh, well, I, I was just using that metaphorically as a, a well-read book, but I do on occasion dog-ear a, a, a place. But I, I got little yellow markles. You can see they're at okay. the top there. I've got... Oh, I uh, just, 
a buddy of mine gets on to me for dog ear in my books and everything, and you ruin the pages. Well, I want references and everything. <laughs> uh, that's what these yellow, little yellow things are for. <laughs> that's another way to do it. But uh, plus, you can put a note on that, you know, like a yeah. file note. Anyway, the point is, is my, my heart is to help the people that listen to your show. And I imagine that this is part of your heart because I, I – I imagine I don't know much about about the particulars of your uh, enterprise, but it's um, um, largely there to encourage and, and, and train Christians. Though so you engage non Christians too, who may be uh, who may show up at different times, and that's my that's my heartbeat, and that that explains what Stand a Reason does. Stand a Reason, um, we are here. We train Christians. That's our first three words of our mission statement. Okay, and we train in very particular ways according to our profile and what we're about, what we're good at, I think, and we are building ambassadors for Christ. So this is really a discipleship enterprise. So if people want to understand something about me, that is a real important thing. Um, I care about uh, the truth. I care about clarity. I care, care about not people not being taken captive by philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men rather than according to Christ. That's Colossians 2. Um, and so these are the kinds of things that kind of um, get, keep me going and get me up in the morning, although my getting up in the morning is getting later and later. <laughs> for, one, for one, we're all, you know, we're, we're sheltered in, and uh, I feel like I'm 70, so I'm slowing down a little bit. Uh, and that, you know... That's a factor, but I still uh, I, I still want to build a team and an organization that long outlives me. And right. like it, MacArthur's old soldier, I just want to uh, kind of fade away into the background while the work of Stand to Reason continues. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, one thing I got to say, and it brings back the old adage, you know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care type deal. Mm -hmm. Just living the faith, living the convictions and, and practicing what you preach and and i have to tell you i just be perfectly frank and, and perfectly honest that out of all the interviews that i've done and for anybody that's watching uh whenever we do these interviews i have some conversation with the interviewee beforehand before we go live and by far and i'm not just saying this to two your horn but by far greg has been the most real person the most humble person and just an individual that just wanted to get to know me and talk to me and just have normal conversation. And so I uh, appreciate that with you, um, brother, and everything, because no matter you're up here and everything, as far as your visibility, like you said, yeah, you're still very humble uh, to just talk to a, a Christian brother and everything, mm -hmm. just about normal stuff. So mm -hmm. truly happy. By the way, I, thank you. That's very sweet. And I really appreciate that. It means a lot to me. I do want to say something about the slogan that you offered just off the cuff here. Uh, since we're not really at big time <laughs> limits, uh, we can kind of move around. But the, this, um, there are a lot of slogans that have some some significant truth to them, but also have a little bit of a dark side. And I think this Ooh. is one of them. Okay. Maybe dark is not the right word, but inaccurate side. Uh, people don't care enough. They, they don't care. How does that go? <laughs> They don't People care what you care know until they know that you care kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Well, the, the truth of that is, is that if you're not interested in the individual, you don't, you don't, you don't show that you value the individual in some sense, um, and you treat them simply like gospel fodder, okay, okay, then this is not good. 
Okay, and that's really the 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 bright side of that, or the correct side of that. Right. Uh, but the the other side, I call them pastorisms because they're the kind of aphorisms that pastors use, okay. and um, without making the clarification. And the clarification here is, is that um, it's not strictly true that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. We go to all kinds of people. We go to doctors, CPAs, uh, you know, we go real estate agents, and we don't have to have warm fuzzies with them before um, before we we trust what they have to say we we trust their credentials okay <clears throat> excuse me now if they have a good bedside manner all the best all the better but um, and so I think what has happened with some people taking that too much to heart is they think well my goal here is to be nice and sweet and show how much I love and and then they're really slow into getting into the things that that other person really needs to know and so um, if being nice then becomes our means of evangelism then or our primary means, my, my, my observation is that you'll never be able to out-nice a Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to be there momentarily. So we'll put a lid on that for right now. But yeah, you're totally right. You know, and I was talking to people about this the other time. It's, it, it's like you always hear man, those Mormons are nice people, right? You always hear somebody say that because they're always doing something, serving. They are nice. Granted, they're doing it for the wrong reasons, but what would it take for someone to say, wow, that Baptist is a really nice person, you know, or whatever the case is. You don't really hear that that much. Yeah, so it's both and actually, you know, not either or, I guess is what I'm saying. So I I appreciate that. I I like that insight and everything. And I'm always uh, willing to just look at some things. And and you're like me, I guess. And and you like to dissect some things and phrases Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. My son hates it. He's like, Dad, you need to stop reading into what I'm saying and yada, yada. yada. So it's just part of, I guess, personality. But Uh so today we've titled this interview, The Ins and Outs of Evangelism, Engaging the Person and not the culture. And one thing I loved about Ravi Zacharias, who's now with the Lord, is the fact that he never answered the question. He always went to answer the questioner because he always knew at the root of the question was somebody asking it. And so he always tried to engage the heart. And so it's our prayer that this interview, this discussion is going to allow you to realize how do we engage the individual and not to just get into a debate. Uh, I've been into a lot of theological debates and everything. And it doesn't really get anywhere. And so you really got to engage the heart and give them something to chew on. So first, right off the bat, uh, we got about 12 questions and everything. The first one, typically a softball, it's a general question. You probably answered it a million times. Can you explain what is Christian apologetics and what is its importance in society and the world today? Well, um, Christian apologetics is really simply, uh, and many of your listeners have heard this, is making a defense for the truth. Okay. Uh, by the way, apologetics applies to lots of di- different disciplines, not just to Christianity. Mm-hmm. So you can be an apologist for atheism. Richard Dawkins is a good example of that. You can be an apologist for the legal profession, you know, which might be under attack, or or for uh, public service when politicians are characteristically maligned. You say, wait a minute, there's another side to this, or whatever. So an apologist is somebody who def- defends. A Christian apologist is someone who defends Christianity. And apologetics developed uh, fairly early on in Christian history, the first the second end of the first century, the beginning, especially the beginning of the second century. And there are two things that were going on. One was external and one was internal. The external thing is there's a lot of persecution of Christians. 
And for, for what good reason? Well, it's because they weren't bowing down to the cultural gods of the age. Um, and, and there I mean literally because they were to uh, um, uh, profess uh, fealty to, to Caesar as, as a god. If, um, <clears throat> excuse me, especially if they're in the military, you know, and this is why Christians didn't go in the military. That was mistaken for pacifism in the early Christians, but it was for a different reason. And, uh, and so, but also internally, so part of what they're saying, why are, you, why are you killing us? We're good people. We're good citizens. This is what we believe. We have all these virtuous things, and we're, you're your best kind of citizen. And then on the inside, um, uh, sound, I was going to say classical doctrine, but they didn't have <laughs> their doctrine wasn't classical yet. But a basic sound biblical Christianity was being perverted uh, by the Arians, uh, first by the Gnostics, and then by the Arians, and then there were other uh, Sabellians and all various different things. So the so the apologists had to stand up and say, this is not right. Now, sometimes Christian apologists nowadays are called heresy hunters, and this is a this is a negative characterization. And um, the attitude shouldn't be trying to find ev everything wrong with everybody that disagrees with you on anything. Obviously, that's a bad attitude. But um, for us to be able to protect sound doctrine and refute those who contradict, that is the responsibility of every single elder in every single church. It's on the list. Read Titus and First Timothy. It's right there. And almost no church follows that nowadays, and this is why we are taken captive by philosophy and empty deception, which is why it's necessary for uh, kind of specialists uh, like me and you to be there to answer questions and help people work through these issues. Um, it doesn't matter to me that they're parachurch organizations. To me, this is just an artificial designation. We're all part of the church, and we're doing what we can do on behalf of the church. So, um, so that's what apologetics is defending. Now, why it's necessary is because from the very beginning, People have been taken captive by philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men rather than according to Christ. This is not a new thing that's is happening here. It has been happening from the beginning. That's Colossians chapter 2. And he says, he has a phrase in there, according to the elementary principles of the world. And um, there was some hint that he's 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 pointing at maybe a a, a pre-gnosticism a neoplatonism that's kind of already creeping into the discussion and um and so and we know that john had to deal with that and a lot of what first john is about is dealing with some of those gnostic ideas that were creeping in um uh, point point being the scripture is telling us to be careful not to be taken in by these things and not only that, it's not just a defensive enterprise. There's also an offensive enterprise that Paul actually identifies as a part of spiritual warfare. And this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You know, people think about spiritual warfare, and I mean, it's real, more real than we imagine, okay? But they think of it in terms of power encounters, Danny, not not truth encounters. Like, what's spiritual warfare? Well, that's bad things are happening to me and the demons are getting me and so I'm going to pray against them. Right, and yeah. That's appropriate, okay? But that in the way that the devil gets his job done. The Ooh. devil is a liar, Jesus said. And he that's his nature. He lives by lies, okay? And he holds the world captive. Um, and there are, I can think of four different verses right now, right off the top of my head, that uh, talk about the captivation of the world. And the captivation is because of lies, and so this passage um, in 2 Corinthians 10 
First few verses says that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Hmm. What kind of fortress is that? And then he says, we are tearing down so destruction of fortress tearing down so here's what we're tear here's the fortress we're destroying uh every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of god okay speculations theories raised up against the knowledge of god and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of christ now the thoughts there is not like think pure thoughts that's not what he's talking about it's good that we do that but that's not what he's talking he's yeah. talking about think true thoughts about god and so consequently uh, uh, the massive part of spiritual warfare is doing just what you do danny is you're out there proclaiming the truth the belt of truth is the very first piece of our spiritual armor we're proclaiming the truth in the face of the lies and this is required every single generation it's just the lies are different with the changing culture but the circumstances do not change at all and by the way neither does does human nature and so we have um people saying nowadays and this might be one of your questions but i'll just in passing make reference to it uh well young people now don't care about truth you know they're postmoderns; they don't really care about truth nonsense they care all human beings are made the image of god and we are truth seekers by nature and every person who claims to be a postmodernist is looking all around him to figure out what's true about the world and if he couldn't do that uh in, in certainly important issues that he'd be dead in a day yeah. we'd be gone if we couldn't figure out the truth about the world in one day we'd be dead take one trip on the highway and you're done with if you can't figure out the truth of the circumstances around you that is definitely true you know and, and we're going to talk very briefly about it but the truth yeah that they're looking at isn't what is God's truth? It's what, you know, sometimes what is truth to them. But yeah, some of the truths, like you said, dead in a day. If they have to trust that if I drink this bottle of bleach, whatever, That's that right. it's going to harm me. Uh, so there has to be some sort of at least objective truth that they're going to hold on to and, mm -hmm. and understand and believe in. Uh, you had mentioned that early on it's been external and internal as far as apologetics is concerned. And really that's, that's the heartbeat of C4C here is the fact that it's based off of obviously first Peter chapter three, verse number 15, uh, to be able to give a reason for the hope that lies within you with meekness and fear. Right. And, but also not only for those externally and that are asking, but Jude verse three, you know, to earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints, right. because we got to look at apologetics is the fact of number one, we're losing Christianity, I, I'm not going to say that Christians are losing the faith, but Christians' faith are severely weakened once they mm -hmm. leave the homes. They can't get answers to a lot of the questions that they have that are legitimate questions. Mm -hmm. No one has studied enough. No one simply just has the insight in most of Christendom to answer the omnipotence paradox, the odyssey, and stuff like that. And yeah, we see in Acts chapter 17 where Paul's dealing with these views as well. We see that uh, he's still deal dealing with the Stoic philosophers, the Epicurean philosophers and everything else yeah. there. And it's yeah. fascinating how he knows so much about the philosophy that he can even use their philosophy against them to prove the one true God. Yeah, he was, a, in a certain sense, he was a man of the world. And that is, he understood the world that he was living in. He understood the Jewish world. Um, obviously, he was trained under Gamaliel, but he was a citizen by birth. 
and a citizen of the Roman Empire by birth, and as a result, uh, I mean, uh, which indic- which helps explain why he see- he knew a lot about a lot of things. So he- there he can quote those Epicurean philosophers, which meant something to the Gentiles with whom he was speaking, and he was trying to find a, a point of common ground to use as leverage to get their attention than to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And, uh, and, and this is part of what we're faced with right now. Now, back to that Colossians passage that both of us have made reference to, um, we can't guard against the philosophies of men unless we have some sense of what those philosophy, uh, philosophies of men are. And, um, and we, can't, we can't tear down the speculations unless we have some understanding of the speculations. And it, it doesn't require that everyone have a degree in theology or everyone have a degree in apologetics and all that. But I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying things are getting much, much more difficult. So think about it this way. I, I, in 1976, I spent time behind the Iron Curtain in uh, what six different communist countries working with Christians uh, who are suffering under communist totalitarianism. And um, th- th- their priorities were reordered yeah. in virtue of their cultural problems and pressures. Okay, there comes a time when you just have to say, all right, we're going to have to do some things here in light of the things that are standing right in front of our face. And unfortunately, uh, far too many Christians and Christian institutions are folding to the culture. They are just giving up because they don't want people to be mad at them. And here I've got a verse for you, and every Christian should emblazon this verse on their mind. It is Mark 15, 15. Easy to remember. Mark 15, 15. This is the trial of Jesus. And the question here is, it's Pilate, and the question is Judas or, I'm sorry, Barabbas or Jesus? Mm. Barabbas or Jesus? And this is what he's asking them. And he's actually appealing for Jesus, Pilate is. He knows who Barabbas is. He also knows that Jesus is innocent. And here's what the text says, wishing to please the crowd. He released Barabbas and had Jesus whipped and crucified. Wishing to please the crowd. I do not want to be on Pilate's side when it comes to the mob, no matter what it costs me. And I want every person who's a Christian listening to this show to make a decision right now that if they're a follower of Christ, they are not going to side with the mob in order to please them rather than please Christ, no matter what the cost. Amen. Amen. I appreciate that. And I appreciate that explanation. And Really, it's a matter of who are we pleasing and seek to please man, right. please God. And if it's to please God, great. If it's to please man, you really need to repent and get those priorities in order. So the second question, again, a little bit of a softball. Uh, <laughs> can you explain what a worldview is and how important is the worldview when we're looking at society today? Okay, a, a worldview, the different people explain this different ways. Some will say a worldview is kind of a set of glasses that you put on, and it colors the way, the, the way you see the world. Okay. Uh, it's a very common metaphor. I hate it. 
And the reason is, <laughs> but they think about it. Yeah. What this way of explaining it is, it, it, it's, it's basically saying you don't see the world as it is. Okay. You only see distortions. Okay, this is, I mean, philosophically, it's called non-realism. You know, this is a huge part of what was taking place in the, you know, 17th, 18th and 19th century. And, and uh, uh, that all, all you see, this is how, this is how the, uh, you know, all the Impressionists write and make blurry paintings. That's what's driving their idea. You don't see the world. You see images through the lens. Okay. So I think we see the world. I think God has given us the capability to see the world. Okay, now what then, I, I think a metaphor is more appropriate uh, in the book, The Story of Reality. Um, I talk about story as a way of describing our worldview, but, um, and there are different stories, characterizations of the way the world actually is. So in the book, I say, in answering the question, what is Christianity? And the, the, the answer is Christianity is a view of reality. It's a characterization of what the world is really like. It's not our spiritual fantasy. It's not like uh, Marx said, you know, the opiate for us makes us feel, the opiate of the people is what he said in religion. It's not just what I'm choosing to make me feel better. I'm not going to relativize it like that. I think that Christianity tells us what the actual world is like. It doesn't give us a different set of glasses. Right. It removes our glasses and tells us what the world is actually like. So here, uh, I think the most, um, the most, uh, accurate kind of metaphor is that a worldview is kind of like a map. When you think of what a map is, a map is a characterization of reality. You have a map, you have a GPS thing or whatever. What is that doing? It is telling you the contours of the actual geography. Okay. And it tells you the contours of the actual geography so that you can navigate mm -hmm. <laughs> the actual geography. Right. And if the map isn't good, you end up in a ditch or at the wrong location or that kind of stuff. Okay. So now worldviews are like maps. Here's the way the geography of reality actually is. That's what a worldview um, does. So take the worldview of materialism. Okay. That's a metaphysical view. Metaphysical view is just a, 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 a view of what is real. Okay. On that view of what is real, that worldview, the only things that are real are physical. Material things pushed around by nature. So does God exist? No, of course not. Because he's not physical, he can't exist in a world in which only physical things exist. No heaven, no hell, no deep morality, no right or wrong, because there can't be any standards above anybody. Those are not material, obviously. So there's a contrast there. So we have two different maps mm -hmm. of reality. The Christian map, and then I gave you an example of another one, the the uh, materialist or the atheist, secularist, communist, uh, humanist map. Those are those are that uh, that's the map for all of those groups. They all hold to that. And when you view the world in that way, your behaviors are going to be uh, comport with your convictions about the way the world actually is. So let's say there is no God, okay? There is power still, human beings have power, and there is no restraint in the power from above. There is no right or wrong. So therefore, on that view, there is no principled reason not to use power however it suits the powerful person. Right. That makes sense in their worldview. Okay, and uh, so this is why we see in communist countries totalitarian governments, because the state is the highest 
right. because the state is the most powerful. Okay, so all it's an all power thing going on right now. Okay, but that fits that worldview. In Christianity, we say that's not an accurate view of the world. There is a God to whom we must speak. Mm -hmm. And at the Nuremberg trials, uh, after the Second World War, this was the argument that was given. Cultures aren't the highest form of, of right and wrong, but there is a law above the law. And we are holding you accountable, you war criminals, to the law above the law. The reason they could do that is because their worldview wasn't materialistic. It was broadly Christian worldview, that there is a God who makes laws that we ought not violate even if our society tells us to do so. So what I've tried to do is just give you, give a metaphor. Don't think of it this way. Don't think of it like glasses. Uh, think of it like a map. And the map describes the actual topography. And if the map is wrong, um, then you're going to make bad decisions, okay? Now, I, know, I mentioned about war crimes and all that other stuff because I think most people have an intuitive sense that they're, those things are not right. And this is, people talk like this all the time. But there's no way to call them wrong in a materialistic worldview. So at that point, there's no way for that worldview to fit reality the way it is. Everybody complains about the problem of evil. This universal. doesn't matter where you lived or when you lived. Everybody knows something's wrong with the world. But when you think about it, if materialism is an accurate map of reality, there can't be anything wrong with the world. It, everything just is. There is no grand design that's not being fulfilled. Things just happen. That's it. You know, no, 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 no purpose. No, well, how does uh, Richard Dawkins do it? Nothing but blind piddle. No good, no evil. indifference. Nothing but blind pitiless indifference. And at that point, he is talking consistently, at least, as a materialist. So there's a general picture, in my view, uh, of how material uh, worldviews work. And it, and thought when you see it in those terms, you can see how important it is to get your worldview accurate because there are consequences to um, not living according to reality. Reality is what injures you when you bump into it. Oh, you know? yeah. And I, I like the uh, idea of the map uh, metaphor as well, because it one's worldview shapes on how they're going to live and, and how they're going to get right. from a to point B. And, and with an improper worldview, they're, they're going to be making bad choices, like a faulty GPS is going to take you to places exactly. they don't even want to go and uh, things like that. So I've never heard that. I appreciate the fact that uh, it, it's, you don't, it's in this book I talk about. <laughs> Story of reality. So we're actually going to put some links in the comments for uh, tactics, story of reality as well. But uh, so if you want to purchase those, I always need stuff to add to my my bookcase and everything else. One thing I love that we'll probably get into it. One thing that you had mentioned during one of your presentations is when we're talking about evangelism and how we're looking at the agricultural perspective. One plants, one waters, but God gives the increase and everything. Right. One thing that you had mentioned that really affected me personally is that you personally believe that not only most of the Christian community, but you yourself is much more of a gardener yeah. than a harvester. Right. And uh, that's one thing that God has used that you had said to really affect me. And I think a lot of people in our church too here, as mm -hmm. far as, hey, if some evangelists say, if you haven't led one person to the Lord every year, you're not doing your job. And, yeah. and when... <laughs> We heard you say that the sort of set uh, gave freedom. Yeah, well, that's good. Uh, and I, uh, it's not, it's not. Uh, you don't lead people to the Lord, and so therefore you do nothing. 
the substance there of that observation about gardening is that there are two parts to the process. And before there can be a harvest, there's got to be a season of gardening. I mean, this is common sense, not only with agrarian issues, but also with um, with evangelism. And uh, Jesus talks about this in John 4, by the way, after his encounter with the woman at the well. He says, some sow and some reap, and so that the one who sows and the one who reaps can rejoice together. So you have one field, you have, um, you have uh, one team, but you have two seasons and you have two kinds of workers. And um, I don't know if you've heard me say this precise thing, but I have been doing it for about the last year and a half and shocking people like crazy by saying it, but then, it, um, but using it is to, to make a point, And that is that I have not prayed with someone to receive Christ in at least 30 years. I'm 47 years a Christian, at least 30 years. And like, what a loser, you know, kind of thing. But um, it's not because, oh, and that's great because I'm not engaged. I am engaged. I talk to people a lot about Christ, but um, I don't, I'm not in a, I'm not in harvest mode. And um, the way that we do evangelism kind of presumes harvest mode. Okay, I'm going to share these things and here's the prayer, pray the prayer, you know, that kind of deal. And my my, my conviction is that the harvest happens na fairly naturally and easily when the gardening is done. Even in my own case of September 28, uh, 1973, which is just a, a little more than a week ago for my birthday, spiritual birthday, when my brother came to talk to me more about the Lord at my apartment, I said, Mark, I, I want to become a Christian. You don't have to keep going. And so that fruit just fell into the basket because the Holy Spirit had done what was necessary to make make me ready for that. What what made the difference was all the gardening that came before. And so, by the way, to put this comment of mine in perspective, <clears throat> excuse me, many uh, of your listeners know about Jay Warner Wallace, the cold case Christianity, et cetera, et cetera. But what they may not know is that Jim was in my garden. Mm -hmm. Jim was listening to our radio show when he was an atheist. <laughs> And he will tell you himself that his his life and his spiritual life and the trajectory of his spiritual life was deeply influenced by Stan to Reason. This is one reason he came onto our organization uh, for a couple of years as a speaker. And uh, he's one of my closest friends now. But uh, he told me later, he says, I, this is, I listened to you before. And that really surprised me. But um, uh, some also of your listeners may know who Abdu Murray is, you know, a former Muslim who became a Christian. And, uh, and then a Christian apologist, and now he's the senior vice president uh, at RZIM. And uh, Abdu was in my garden, too. When he was a Muslim, he was listening to our show. How do I know that? Because he took me out to dinner once, and he told me. He gave me the whole story, and now we're also really good friends. But the, uh, the, point, the point I'm making is these guys were in my garden, but I didn't harvest them. Someone else did or they're harvested at a different time in a different way. I don't even know if either of them, to be honest with you, if either of them could tell you that there was some point in time when another individual prayed with them to receive Christ. I don't even know if that's true about them. I should ask them. I'll see Jim next weekend. Um, but it's it's this natural process of the gospel being preached and communicated in powerful and effective ways, in clear ways, in persuasive ways, just like in the New Testament, and then people believed. Yeah. You know, it, it, it isn't like they, they had to, you know, um, well, you pray this prayer to receive Christ. That's a, actually a relatively new tradition in Christianity. It only goes back about 200 years. I'm not against it. I'm just simply saying that's not required. What I want people to do 
is to realize that the real heart, heavy lifting, the hard work is in the gardening. And a little bit here, a little bit there, and, and we're all part of that. You don't have to press for someone to re receive Christ to move them closer to that point. And I think in saying so, you can reflect on this too from your own experience in your church, giving people that freedom and the tools to do it, which is the tactical game plan, they are then uh, much more likely to get off the bench and 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 do a little bit more and when you have more gardeners you're going to have a bigger harvest yep and, and that's so that's so true because uh we're in a it's about a seven eight week evangelism series that we're going through right now and a couple weeks back we watched a lecture that i'm going to bring up here momentarily that you had done and it just it revealed so much to all of us and everything and in the more tools the more equipped people tend to be uh the easier it is for them to get off that bench and I really agree. get into the game. And, and a lot of times, and we'll talk about this too, is people don't know how to start the conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole salt method as far as start a conversation, ask a question, listen, tell a story type deal. Uh, it, it's always, it seems to be that, that first, how do I start? What mm -hmm. tool? What if they ask me this question? And whether it's uh, conversational evangelism and learning about the barriers, intellectual, emotional, volitional, or whether it's the tactics and looking at uh, the Rhodes Scholar or just the facts or just the Columbo tactic. And what do you mean by that? How would you mm -hmm. come to that conclusion? Uh, right. Giving these people's, I, put, I, I call it uh, putting it in your toolkit, you know, right. your apologetic toolkit. That Perfect. way you know, you have it, you're aware, you're equipped. To do the work of the ministry so definitely uh, i want to ask you though uh, go back just a little bit relativism mm -hmm. so, and you i think you touched briefly on just postmodernism a little bit yeah uh, could you elaborate what what do you believe led to the rise of relativism here in the west specifically the flesh the flesh <laughs> So has it always been the case, or before pre-postmodernism, we had that? Well, let me say, period? let me let let me um, define relativism. Um, relativism is an understanding of what it it means for something to be true. Okay, it's a it's a it's a way of understanding what it means for something to be true. Okay, mm -hmm. now classically, the concept of truth. Uh, was tied to the nature of reality, the external world. So if I said it's true that I am talking with Daniel on his podcast right now, well, that would be an accurate statement if I actually was right. <laughs> talking with you. It wouldn't be true if I imagined it. Mm. Okay. What would be true is that I'm imagining it. Right. Mm-hmm. But if I'm claiming it's true that I'm talking with you, but in fact I'm only imagining it, that would be a problem. Yeah. That means my imagination is tricking me to think that something in my head, so to speak, right. is really happening out there. That's what hallucinations are. That's the difference between believe and make-believe, okay? So um, when you think of it that way, um, it's pretty straightforward. It's very simple. That truth understood in that fashion is actually the, I call it the garden variety definition of truth because it, um, it's what we all mean almost every single time we make reference to truth. Mm. Time for dinner. Really? 
I just sat down here. I thought you just started. No, I'm all done. Time flies. Oh, yeah, okay. All right, I better stop and eat. Okay, now that the whole discussion was about what's true out there. Really? Okay, yeah. Here are the reasons. Notice how even in a very simple kind of conversation like that, there's a claim about truth, and there is some question about whether it's accurate or not, and then you look at the details, and then you respond based on what you learned about the nature of the way the world actually is. Now, that um, is 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 an understanding of truth that is normal, common, standard, that is tied to the nature of the world as it is in itself. Okay, I'm just going to call that the objective world because it's the object. When I say the object, I mean I mean uh, everything outside of me, I, and I don't even mean my body. I mean my my conscious self. Okay, right. what's going on out there? That's the objective world. And our, when our claims are t tied to the way the world actually is, then that's considered true. There's a fancy philosophical term for that. It's truth by correspondence. But, but you don't need to know that stuff because people already know what that is. This is the way they operate every day. Okay. Now, um, let me give you another example, though, a, a second way of understanding this uh, concept of truth. It's, it's, it creates confusion, but this is the way people talk. So if I said um, Haagen-Dazs butter pecan ice cream is delicious, so now I'm making a statement, right? I'm making a statement, what appears to be about ice cream, okay? And I'm claiming that it is delicious, all right? But when you look at this more carefully, we're not talking about anything about the ice cream. Because some people can eat that same ice cream and, you know, barf it up because it tastes awful to them, right? So what I'm actually stating is making a, a truth claim about something about me. The delicious is a, an assessment that... I now as a subject, object, right. subject, I as a subject am making regarding something in the world. This appeals to me personally. I like the taste of it. This is a flavor that appeals to me. So one could say that the statement Haagen-Dazs butter pecan ice cream is delicious is true, but only for me because someone else may not like this. Now, just to make the clear, here you go. Okay, so the clear, I actually don't care for it so much anymore either because I use this as an illustration and people kept buying me Haagen-Dazs butter pecan and I got <laughs> sick of it. So now I have a different flavor, which I don't indulge in too often because I'm trying to keep my girlish figure, you know, but I'm not telling anybody what it is because I don't want to ruin it for me. But it is, it's it's over at Baskin-Robbins. That's all I'm going to say. And there's only 31 flavors, so. Yeah, there's, th <laughs> actually they have more than that, but they only have 31 in the case at any given time, I think. In any event, though, is I, I'm just using this illustration to make the distinction between a, 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 tr a truth that could appropriately, a truth, Right. that could be appropriately described as a personal subjective truth. Okay, so now you have two different groups of truth. You have truth uh, that is a, is a statement about the objective world, and that's either, true, that's either uh, uh, accurate or not accurate. Right. I mean, so I, I could say, you know, you know, I'm in Florida right now, and you could say, no, you're not. You know, you're wrong about that. It's totally appropriate to adjudicate the correctness or incorrectness of statements about the objective world. And we do this all the time. Okay. But when it comes to private things, like 
a Haagen-Dazs butter pecan ice cream, you know, if somebody said, really, you like that stuff? Why? You're really bad. You're a sinner because you like that. What? That would not be the appropriate kind of assessment of that kind of thing because people have just have tastes that seem to be innocuous, whatever kind of deal. All right. So um, th this is the distinction between objective claims and subjective claims. Objective claims are about the world as it is in itself, and subjective claims are about 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 personal preferences. Uh, objective claims are either I, I want to say right or wrong, but some people might confuse that with morality. So I'll just say it correct or incorrect. Okay. And and subjective claims are neither correct nor incorrect. You can't be faulted usually for your tastes in ice cream certainly and desserts now if your taste in dessert was little children that would yeah and then you're, <laughs> that you're in a different category yeah. but i think folks get now that is the simplest way of describing the difference between an objective truth and a subjective truth okay. subjective truths are also called relativistic truths because the truth is relative to the individual subject okay now the word relativism is a little bit misleading because there is relativism of a sort on the other side uh, in object case truth is relative to the objective state of affairs the key here is that the truth claim and object is tied to third person public reality out there and so you can have discussions about whether a person is correct or not and uh, and subjective, fully subjective truths are relative just to the subject. So, by the way, on subjective truths, nobody could ever say that anybody's right or wrong on subjective truths. Okay, because subjective truths are just you know that's up to you. That's your deal. You can't be wrong on what you think you like. Right. You know. Oh yeah, definitely. Once you don't bring in morality to the equation, opinion-based things like that, preferences. Yeah. Well, when I say when I say wrong in this case, um, yeah, I'm not talking about morality. I'm talking right. about correctness. Okay, yep. you can't be incorrect about what you think and what you what what you prefer inside your own inner states or your own inner states. You yep. know, and so, okay. So now, with that position in mind, <clears throat> excuse me, with those distinctions in mind, what is it that turns out to be underneath the um, province of subjectivistic elements? versus objectivistic elements okay the big contender through in, the, in most of our lifetime has been morality okay where people say and this started more in the 60s when i was in college because um that the, all of the standards were being questioned back then who are you to say who's that person to say who's anybody to say i'm master of my own fate i'm captain of my own soul i get to describe what is right or wrong there in the moral sense now for me it's up to me and so this becomes this individual moral relativism begins to rule all right and people use this language even today who are you to push your morality on me or who are you to say and that's that's kind of like referring to authority like maybe there might be an authority in principle that gets to tell me what's right or wrong but it ain't you Right, yeah. And actually, on this view, it ain't anybody. Yeah. I'm the authority that gets to say it. So re now, moral relativism, it becomes a kind of um, autonomous 
position. I am God in this. By the way, does that sound familiar? Yep. That kind of goes back uh, yep. more than a couple thousand years, all the way back to Genesis 3. Years, yeah. This is why I kind of jokingly said the problem is flesh, you know, because relativism is grounded in human autonomy. I get to say what's right or wrong. I get to, I get to say what's true or false for me. Okay, so that's the general concept of relativism. Now, when you think about it, you can see how this has been expanded beyond morality. Because now people could say, well, first of all, I can say what's right or wrong for me with regards to my sexual behavior. Mm. So I can sleep with my girlfriend if I want. Now, when I was in college, that was as long as you love each other. So notice there's a, 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 a slow shift in the objective moral standard. No, it's not like husband, wife. Now it's as long as you love each other, you care about each other, okay? So the, already there's a shifting and a questioning, has God said? And then it became whatever I want, okay? Wow. And now it's not just sleeping who, with whoever you want, but whatever gender or sex that you want. And if your preference is for the same sex, why is that a problem? You know, and I have heard people say during this discussion, as we've gone as a culture, you know, this is no more of a concern of somebody else than whether you're left-handed or right-handed. So these are morally neutral things. People get to decide for themselves. You don't like homosexuality, then don't participate. You don't like abortion, then don't get one. But don't act like your morality applies to me. So now you see relativism engaging the whole moral spectrum on individual behavior. And then it's now taken another step. It's not just what sex I want to have, but what gender I am. So are you, what, what, what is your preferred gender? And when somebody, you know, the doctor spanks a baby on the butt, you know, and says, it's a boy. Well, that doctor has done something cruel to the child because he's assigned a sex to the child which has nothing to do with that child's genitals. It has everything to do with that child's personal autonomous choice. Now, if you don't buy all, into all of this, you're an oppressor. Okay. Now, I'm just going to make a pause here and just make an observation. Maybe I've talked too much. I don't know, but here. No, you're good. Topic. You're good. But, but notice how when somebody says, you're the oppressor, if you don't accept, accept that, what have they just done? Oppressive. They have made a moral judgment. Okay. What kind of moral judgment is that? Is that your own subjectivist point of view moral judgment? To which, which I can completely ignore, just like you want me to ignore your judgments for yourself about sexuality. And so what, if I can ignore it, why are you telling me this? Why are you telling me I'm an oppressor? Because you sound like you're saying something about me when actually you're saying something about you. Yep. No. What you did like and don't like. If I were that way, if I, if I were you, I wouldn't oppress people like that. Well, okay. But why should I care what you think? because I live in my own moral world. Okay, watch this, on your view. Remember, this is their map, not my map as a Christian. So at this particular point, they have, now they're stepping outside of their worldview and they are trading on a different standard 
that does not belong in their worldview. They are being radically inconsistent at that point, but they don't even realize it. So this brings me to one other point, and then we'll, we'll, we'll move wherever you want to go. And that is, even, even though people now are radically relativistic, and what, by the way, what postmodern is, postmodernism is, is that everything is ice cream. <laughs> there is no reality out there to connect with. It's all made up in your mind. And uh, th th this is, um, uh, th there's a philosophic word for this called solipsism. And what, it, what solipsism means is that you're the only one that exists. Nothing else exists but your mind. But this is what it amounts to. More or less. It's all just me and what's in my mind. Okay, that's postmodernism. You know, we don't know anything. We just have images. We just have what's going on in our mind. So we have. So what we do is we invent our own stories about what reality is like, and we live according to our own stories. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so that's what postmodernism is like. But I just the key to keep in mind is there is no human being that can live consistently with the relativistic view, and the reason why is because they actually are human beings made in the image of God and they have to live in God's world, okay? And, if, and, and that being the case, they cannot escape making moral judgments even when they say moral judgments are wrong to make. And they do it all the time. And a lot, there's a number of tactical maneuvers that I talk about in the book that helps us to exploit this using questions, of course. But uh, I just want people to see what's going on. So relativism is a view of truth and um, Basically, the distinctions are when truth is tied to objective reality, that's called objectivism, and when truth is tied to the subjective nature, that's called relativism. And it starts out that morality is the relative thing, who are you to say, and now more and more everything's becoming just simply relative. But nobody can live consistently with that because it's not the right world view. And I think what's What's fascinating about your book, like you said, you, you have a couple different questions you could bring up is being able to equip people to be able to identify these self-defeating statements and just to see that they can't live logically within their own relativistic worldview. Mm -hmm. uh, I just want to, this wasn't part of the script or anything, but uh, at least my questions, whatever the case is, but would you say atheism is a worldview or not a worldview? Yes, of course. So, it's a picture of reality, atheism, of course. Yeah, it's be, a map of reality. It's a picture of reality, of course. Would you say atheism worldview is different from a secularist or a naturalist worldview? Or is it just synonyms? No, the secularists are characteristically atheists. Right. Because a secularist view is a non-religious view. Okay, and um, and and because the nature of secularism then is that man becomes the measure of all things. We're at the top of the pile, and uh, at least most forms of secularism. I mean, I'm just thinking right now a little bit about um, about kind of extreme naturalism and uh, uh, people who are totally into like the. Gaia and planet and all that other stuff. So uh, actually on that view, human beings are like the, the plague of the planet or whatever. But the uh, point I'm making here, though, is, is that, that characteristically uh, secular views, non-religious views, are atheistic by nature, even though there might be some, that is, a, there is no God 
personal God, there still might be some kind of spiritual force that governs things. Though character, I mean, characteristically secularist, humanists, um, uh, certainly communists, it's doctrinal to them. Um, I, I, they have the view that there is no God and there is no immaterial reality of any kind, no souls, no afterlife, uh, no deep morality. There might be cultural morality, but no absolute or objective morality. Right. Okay. I just know I, I have a video out there called Dear Atheist, 10 Things You Should Stop Saying, and one of them saying that you, you don't have a worldview. And, and it's amazing, you know, you get into trenches sometimes and anybody that wants to go out there and just see what the battlefield's actually like spiritually and just yeah. human flesh perspective, do a video about atheism, the cynics, the skeptics and everything, and just be honest, be loving. And uh, it, the ratio of likes to dislikes and nasty comments is just, I had to turn comments off on it. Yeah. So it's just fascinating. But moving on, I just want to read this out. Uh, so I watched the 2016 National Conference presentation that you had personally done. And you had said, I just want to put a stone in your shoe. Right. Okay. Now, can you explain this philosophy? How can this philosophy and this view be used to get to the heart of an unbeliever's worldview as to chip away at it? Yeah, it may not get to the heart of it, but the idea is chipping away at it. And this is consistent with, uh, or this is more of an operational concept tied to the notion of gardening. So if, if you're in a harvest mode, your goal is to uh, try to get the person to pray to receive Christ, sign on the dotted line, close of the deal, that kind of thing. Um, if you're in a gardening mode, your, your, your goal is different. Okay, well, what is the goal? And the way I characterize it, I just want to put a stone in their shoe. Incidentally, whenever I speak to a secular audience, I've spoken at more than 80 college and university campuses, not all secular, but but uh, when I'm in a secular environment, this is what I tell them before I'm about to give my presentation. I'm not here to convert you. I'm a follower of Jesus, okay? No apologies, but I'm not here to convert you, okay? I just want to put a stone in your shoe is what I tell them. And then I characterize it this way. I said, I just want to annoy you in a good way. Yep. All right, I want to annoy you in a good way. I want you walking out of the auditorium with something that I said sticking at you. Mm -hmm. I want you thinking about it because I think that Jesus of Nazareth is worth thinking about. And that's where I leave it. So now when I'm in conversation with people and I'm in gardening mode, which is generally my mode, um, then, I'm, then I'm trying to find some way to give them something to think about which is what I characterize as putting a stone in their shoe. I want them to think positively about one aspect of Christianity. I might give them some rationale. Um, I might want to chip away at their, the foundations of their own worldview. If they think, and they're atheists and they're God, and they think that God is a, is a, is e the God of Christianity is evil, I have a question. I'm confused. Um, Tom, Joe, I'm, whatever, I'm confused. What is the standard that you are using to judge God as immoral? Right. Where are you getting that standard? Are you, now, most of these people um, believe that evolution came, from, I'm sorry, that morality came from evolution. So all they can say that's consistent is that, is that according to my evolution, yeah. I am forced to say that what God did in the Bible is bad. So you're saying God's disobeying your evolution. I actually had one wow. atheist on my own program say that when I asked, yeah, that's right. I said, okay, you know, like I rest my case. What are you going to say after that? 
this is not a meaningful morality. Right. That's bad. What does that mean? That goes against my evolution. Well, it doesn't go against my evolution, apparently, or his evolution. So why should anybody care what happened about your evolution? Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of thing. So have you found, is it safe to say that you found more people come to you afterwards and be like, hey, you gave me something to chew on? Or, or is it more likely that you haven't heard and it's really in the quiet and the stillness of the night that p these things start to generate up in their mind? Yeah, it's a, com a combination of things. And what I would, here's what I would do. Uh, I mean, I encourage your, your viewers to, to think about. Um, the, if they became Christians as an adult, mm -hmm. just think about the steps that led to that. There were events in your life where people were actually gardening. And chances are pretty good that you were pushing back fairly hard during much of that time. But you kept coming back to the table. Why? Because something they said got at you, yeah. kept you thinking. So when you're gardening uh, in, in this situation, you almost never are aware of the good that it did. Mm. All right. I'm just I'm just telling people that if what you're looking for is some atheist to say you have a good point, you got me thinking. That's going to happen once in a while, especially if you're gracious to them. If you're not gracious to them, they're not going to give any ground at all, at least not in your sight. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, God can still use it, but but occasionally I say, yeah, okay, you got me thinking about that. All right, fine. But most of the time, you're not going to hear that. Yeah. Okay. You people are just, but doesn't mean that it's not happening. Okay. God is the one who's in charge of the process. You know, Jesus talks about the growth of the kingdom, and he talks about uh, about planting. And he says, you know, you throw out the thing and the seed, and all of a sudden it sprouts and it gives fruit. And who knows how that happens? Right. You know, what you did the, this, but you didn't cause the growth. You didn't cause this to take place. That's something that God causes. Mm -hmm. So this takes a lot of pressure off for me. I can engage, and then I can forget about it. You know, I can I'll probably never see this person again. They're on an airplane. They're a waitress or whatever. And I did have one occasion where there was a waitress in Seattle, and uh, I had just done a Friday night and all day Saturday seminar, and I was leaving my hotel having breakfast on the way out. My bags there, right there by the table, and it was like eight in the morning. And I'm not a morning person. And this gal, who's a flight, who is a the waitress, was way too cheerful and energetic for me at that time in the morning. And the last thing I wanted to do was talk about God or religion or anything. And uh, but she, what ended up happening? I think she's saying, "Oh, why are you here? And isn't it a great day? And so, what are you doing?" today and all that oh, oh gosh I'll tell her what I'm doing in about an hour I'm preaching at a church that'll get rid of her this is what I'm thinking right yeah. and she's oh that's great I said why would you think that's great <laughs> so I asked her are you a Christian she says no no I used to be a Christian but I'm not anymore I instead the universe takes care of me oh okay <laughs> and I said really how does the universe take care of you? Is the universe is a person? Is it a person? Oh, the universe isn't a person. The universe is, well, I guess, I guess God takes care of me. Okay. Oh, so God is a person. Well, God is the universe. Really? How does that work? Now, notice that all I'm doing is reacting with, what do you mean by that questions? Because I'm kind of mystified by this, but I don't want to talk to this girl. I already confessed. I just want her to go away. I want to drink my coffee and wake up, you know. But notice how just using the very first step of the game plan just to draw her out, you know, I'm, I'm moving forward. It's almost like I can't help but do that, 
even against my will kind of thing, because this is strange. And it's easy to say, what do you mean by that in that circumstance? Anyway, a little while later, she comes back. She left after a while, and I felt, well, that was a waste of time. And, uh, and she came back a little later, and she said, you know, nobody has ever asked me questions about my view the way you did, and it got me thinking. That's go. all she said. Yep. And then I said, well, if I had more time, I'd ask more questions so you could do more thinking, is what I said to her. <laughs> now, fortunately, I, was, I had my bag there, and I almost always carry a copy of the story of reality with me. And so I asked her if she would like to read a book, and she said she'd be willing, and I gave her the copy of that. So, oh. you know, God can use it the way he wants to. But I, I, uh, there's an example, though. Uh, you know, it's like <laughs> she did say it got her thinking. But most of the time, you're not going to get that reinforcement. What you, you look, you go to the garden. If you have a garden in the backyard, you're hoeing and weeding and everything. You don't see fruit. That's the fruit true. comes way at the end of the season, you know. And so, you, but you are getting satisfaction out of doing the work that you know is going to produce the product that God, in this case, has has in view. Obedience. Yep. And so, you know, I, I like to define success as just obedience. You know, whether we see results, we see fruit, whatever the case is, was I obedient? Did God? lead me to talk to this person and say something. So if they didn't respond, was I obedient? Yeah, I agree entirely. That is a great definition of success. Our audience of one is another way of looking at it. Exactly. I was just talking to somebody about that last night. Then when you preach and you teach, I was told, make sure you preach and teach to an audience of one. And That's God right. will take care of everything from there. I, I love your, your, uh, your honesty because I've seen you in presentations saying uh, someone will come up to you and be like, oh, Greg, you, you must have a wonderful personal time when you wake up in the morning. And, and what do you say? You say, frankly, before I have coffee, I'm an atheist. That's right. That's why you can see me. I'm kind of, I'm getting there. <laughs> so it makes me feel a little better too. And I got my coffee as well. But, well, let me ask you this. In your experience, what do you believe? And you've been doing this for a few decades. And you've got a master's in apologetics as well, if I'm not mistaken. What do you believe are some of the main objections and fears that a Christian has to be able to go out there and just talk to people about their faith? Well, I think one fear we've already kind of addressed, and that fear is that they're, they, they are concerned that they're not going to be able to, uh, that they have to put themselves in a position that is discomforting for them. That, and that position being, they've got to try to get this person to pray to receive Christ or something like that. That's the way they're pushing, all right? And they don't feel comfortable with that. And so consequently, they, um, they just don't try at all. So that's one big fear, and I hope I've disabused them of that fear because by talking about the concept of gardening. And, and incidentally, I wrote an entire um, article about this that's on our website. Uh, we have a bi-monthly, well, we call it a newsletter, but it's an article that, that goes out that is meant to uh, train people. And virtually um, every book that I've written is a, is a collection of those chapters or those articles, and I make chapters out of them yeah. uh, in a book. So uh, in January of this year, there was a piece that went out called Gardening versus Gardening or Harvesting or something like that. And uh, str.org is our website. You can get our also get our, our app and they'll have it on there too. But um, <clears throat> you can just type in Gardening in the search feature, you get the whole article. So there's like 35 500 words on just that issue, developing the whole notion. Um, but the uh, that's that's the one thing that will keep people from engaging. Okay. The second thing that keeps people engaging is not having a game plan. 
okay, I don't really know where to go. How to start is what one thing you said. How do I start a conversation? Um, and uh, then, then what? You know, and so the game plan that I offer is three steps. And even if you just do the first step or even the second step, you can still, without doing the whole thing, you still can accomplish some good uh, for the kingdom's sake. You can still garden even as a beginner. I talk about it as going into the, uh, the, the shallow end of the pool, so to speak. Okay. And, um, uh, but the third thing is the reason is they're afraid of getting cornered. Mm. Now you can get cornered in two ways. One way by an aggressive person, and this is why we have things like the steamroller tactic. And in the book, we teach how to deal with aggressive people in a gracious way, but an effective way. I feel my my camera here is beginning to droop, <laughs> so uh, my apologies for that. My my stickum stuff isn't working very well right now, but. Um, and uh, the other way you can get stuck in a corner is if you are, um, you, you just don't know how to deal with an issue. Oh, I don't, I'm afraid I'm going to get asked a question I can't answer. <clears throat> now, in my view, um, that's not a problem. There, in one sense, um, we'd love to be able to have some kind of thoughtful response to every challenge that's brought up, but even I don't have that. And sometimes, you may just have to say, you know, I'm just going to have to give that more thought. You know, what about white privilege? You Christians all have white privilege, okay? What do you mean by white? Well, my first question is, what do you mean by that? You know, what do you mean? By, what is white privilege? Okay, and then if I'm asked to try to give response, I might just simply say, you know what? I have to do more thinking about that. Yeah. I haven't resolved that issue for myself, and I'm just going to have to think. Who can object to that? Who can complain with that? Now, it doesn't mean people wouldn't complain, but my point is that's a completely legitimate and fair response. Um, and some of these kinds of challenges that are coming out of what's called critical race theory, CRT, that we hear all over the place now, uh, these are sometimes hard to respond to because they're so aggressively presented. Right. And so asking some questions, like our first two questions that you modeled a moment ago, what do you mean by that? And how did you come to that conclusion is a way of gathering information. So you're a student at that point. You're not an advocate and you're getting more information. And then you can say, well, I think I need to think about that myself. Okay. That's a way of avoiding getting caught. By the way, all of that is in the tactics book, <clears throat> but these are meant to address these kinds of fears that people have. And I love the way you, you talk about it too, because really in evangelism, they're doing all the work. We're just like you said with Columbo, we're just gathering information, trying to learn about the person, about the story. We can find intellectual, emotional barriers, and really they're doing all the talking. But the right. part that a lot of Christians don't realize is how do we listen? Mm -hmm. A lot of times we do more hearing than we do listening to the individual mm -hmm. and then taking what we've learned to be able to respond that's in a way that relates to what they're saying. Yeah. That's particularly hard for people like you and I because we like to talk. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so it's a it's a it's a it's a workout for me as well to uh, to listen instead of talking, right? Yeah. No, I'm with you. I mean, I, I've read and heard your story about when you met the woman with the pentagram and everything. And yeah, that's right. Which in Wisconsin? <laughs> so she was a pagan, and, and I, yeah. I I may have done what your wife did and just started giggling. <laughs> that's right. She started to chuckle. Yeah. But how you handled she that? Apologize. Sorry. Yeah. It was just textbook because you were just gathering details and information. You get on the topic of pro-choice, pro-life. So, well, 
I want to talk to you because we've talked about here locally as far as analogies, spiritual analogies, and Jesus is a master of analogies like the Holy Spirit's, like the wind, and and you got the bread of life, you got living water as opposed to regular physical water. Mm-hmm. So the question is, engaging the person's heart, how are some beneficial ways we can start a spiritual conversation or spiritual analogies when we're hearing someone talk? How do we transition from the physical to a spiritual dialogue? Well, this is this is an area that I'm I'm not sure that I'm especially good at. Okay, okay. Uh, my main thing is to kind of keep my ears open and listen to what people say and then begin to ask them questions right. about that. Okay, um, I think one, I have heard one question that's a good initiation, and maybe Dave Geisler has more stuff like, he's got a great book and you mentioned it already uh, about, uh, I think, conversational evangelism. And, and uh, we've done some events together where we're both on the stage, you know, kind of giving our side. He's got great stuff. And so he may be more in touch with this particular issue than I am. I'm very left brain, you know, so it's it's like I, it's, that's just where I, where I go most of the time. But there is a question, I think, that is a good question to initiate a conversation if you have a few moments moments with somebody of downtime, it's relaxed, whatever the circumstance happens to be, um, so that you can process, the person can think about the answer, and then you can process it and maybe pursue an education, a a conversation there. And that's the question, what do you think happens when you die? Mm -hmm. What do you think happens when you die? Now, probably younger people aren't going to think very much about that because they're too young and they don't think they're going to ever die. But it might be uh, more effective, unless there's a tragedy in that young person's life. Like one of their friends just got killed in an accident. Right. And this Man, this brings it right up. Okay, what do you think happens? Yeah. And this brings ultimate issues right front and center. But the question is a fair one. And in, in, and it's, it's a, a legitimate um, question of curiosity. So I don't know what they're going to say. But whatever they say, I want to get a clearer understanding of what it is, and then I want to know why they think that's what happens. Now, chances are, if the conversation is you've got time and they say their deal, they might ask you, what do you think happens? And this is where it's really important that the Christian don't just explode out of the gates with a gospel presentation, all right? Simply answer their question. Yeah. So, well... um, I think there's there is an afterlife, and um, now and then you can. There are different ways you could do this, but w- what comes to mind for me is something that Lewis said, C.S. Lewis said. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to integrate that in. I said I, it comes an afterlife, and you know, do you, do you realize I'm role playing right now? But do you realize it ever occur to you that some people like just seem to get away with murder? I mean, does it bother you that there are people who do really really bad stuff? Okay, I don't think they're going to get away with it. I think that after we die, there's going to be a reckoning, okay? And that we are all going to have to stand before God and give an account. Now, that means the bad guys are going to get their, they're going to get their comeuppance. However, it also means I've got to give an account for my life. Okay, now notice I'm speaking autobiographically there. I'm not saying, and you will have to give an account for your life, but it's implicit in the statement, okay? And what we're also trading on here. And this is a chapter in the new, uh, the new edition of Tactics called Inside Out. I know that there are things that are built inside of a person in virtue of the fact that they're made in the image of God. 
And one thing that's built inside of them, no matter who I'm talking about, is the moral law. Okay, they know there's a right and wrong, which is why they talk about it so much. And they talk about it in objectivistic ways. Okay, not just relativistic ways, like when they're accusing someone else of, you shouldn't push your morality on me. Okay, we talked about this before. Um, But they also know, and this is also inside, they know that they haven't kept that law. So they know they're guilty. Okay, and this is the bad news. If they're guilty, that means they're going to have to give an accounting. And now what's that going to look like? Okay, so now I've set the stage maybe for some further discussion. And by the way, even if I don't say anything more at that point, if I sound reasonably credible and I'm gracious and I don't get their defenses up, and I'm just saying I think there's going to be an accounting. And I've also drawn on their own conviction. You ever think that now people get away with murder? Man, that's not right. Yeah. Well, if this, they're not going to get it away. They may in this life, but not in the next. There's going to be accounting. Now, that's got to appeal to the person's sense of justice, but it also, at the same time, it's got to be frightening because uh, we're now there as well. And I know I'm going to have to be there, you know, kind of thing. And so he's thinking, oh, well, he, maybe he's going to be there. That might be a good stone in the shoe. Yeah. So if the conversation goes no further, I've done some good gardening there. And I've gotten into the conversation by asking a somewhat personal question, but I'm willing to hear what that person has to say. And I'm not going to beat them up on it, but I just want to get information. So with that question and asking, say, a perfectly stranger, you know, hey, what do you think happens after we die? Have you, in your personal experience, ever received any sort of negative reaction when you ask that question? No, I haven't. I haven't used it a lot either uh, because I, I, I learned this question about two years ago or something like that. But I, I'm suggesting that I think it would be a good entree to a conversation. Okay. Okay. No. But I don't see why anybody would, especially if you introduce it properly. You know, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? What's that? Well, uh, you know, something I've been thinking about. And if you don't want to talk about, that's fine. So now, in the introduction to the question, I have set the groundwork for a person to beg off if they want to. All right. So, uh, well, here's the question. And the question is, what do you think happens when you die? Any ideas? Hey, I don't want to talk about that. Oh, okay. Sorry. It's all right. Okay. How about them Dodgers? (laughs) (laughs) Change the subject. Uh, I've liked the one uh, where someone just asked this complete stranger, you know, gas station. What are you doing this weekend? And they'll say what they're doing. And naturally, they'll ask, you oh, what are you doing this weekend? They're like, oh, you know, I got church on Sunday. You got a church home, you know? You know, you live around here. And so it's an easy way to invite someone to church as well. Yeah, that's a way. Right. It's a little more... Um, it's it's a little more actively evangelistic, but there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, I've had situations, we've done this too, you know, you give thanks at a, at a table and then uh, for at a restaurant, well, that was before COVID, uh-huh. let's say before the politics of COVID. And so, um, uh, so you can invite the waitress to be part of it. Okay. Would you? We're going to give thanks here. Would you like to join us? And then just hold hands with her and don't take much of her time, but just say a prayer that is a genuine, shortish prayer, yeah. giving thanks to God. Yeah, You're we, just modeling your your Christianity in a are. positive way. And we've done that countless times, and it's just amazing the type of response that some people are like, because we'll say, Do you, we're about to say the blessing. Is there anything we could pray for you or your family? Yeah, about? sure. That's another right. thing. Some people, they're like, no, I'm good. 
it's okay. But like, hey, I'm going to pray for you. Have a great night and pray for your family. Yeah. Other people, we've had people break down, find out they're battling cancer or a loved one just died. Oh, and so it, it, it's a great segue. But so I want to talk a little bit about the steamroller. Yeah. Okay. So like you said, one of the fears is uh, just an attack. Right. Uh, some of these uh, with the new atheist movement going on a couple of decades back and the four horsemen of them and everything, it tends to be a little more aggressive with oh, atheism right. and secularism. So as far as if we're trying to witness and then we get uh, personal attack, what are some methods we could use to diffuse the situation? Now, I know your book talks a little bit about it uh, to go ahead and maintain the conversation, maintain the love and the grace in it and still maybe save some of the evangelism uh, yeah. opportunity. Let, let me offer a distinction between uh, an attacker and a steamroller, okay? Okay. An, an attacker uh, may not be a steamroller. Attacker is somebody who disagrees with you strongly. A steamroller is somebody who interrupts. Okay. That's the critical uh, distinctive of a steamroller interruption right. and it is an attack sure not all attackers are steamrollers but all steamrollers are attackers kind of thing sure, okay yeah. yep. Levite priest <laughs> say again it's like the Levite and priest not all Levites are priests but oh all yeah that's right <laughs> there you go so um, so what do you do when a person does not allow you to give the answer that they're asking for okay uh, they are asking for an accounting of some sort, but when you try to give them that accounting, you try to give them an answer, they are uh, pushing back really hard by interrupting. You start an answer and then bang. They don't like what they hear, and so they, they, they don't even like what they begin to hear, and they interrupt, and they take you down somewhere else. Bang, 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 and that's getting steamrolled, okay? And you're not going to get anywhere with this kind of person. Now, by the way, I need to mention that most of the time steamrollers are uh, hard to deal with. That is, they're the kind of people that are going to, that uh, you've got to forcibly, in a certain sense, address. There are sometimes benevolent steamrollers, uh, that is, people who are just overly excitable and just jumping in all the time, but they're they're nice. Um but in, in any case, it, you have to deal with steamrollers uh, regardless of whether they're nice or not. And this is going to take some steel by the Christian. You gotta, you gotta, in a certain sense, pardon the expression, man up yeah. to be able to deal with that. And the way, they, the way you do that uh, is by, there's three steps in dealing with a steamroller. And the first step um, is to stop them and negotiate in a very simple kind of way. All right. So, Dan, if you were steamrolling me here on an issue and you bang interrupted, bang interrupted, I said, oh, I would just say something like, okay, hold on just a minute, Dan. I'm not quite finished. Let me finish this thought. Is that all right? And then I'll let you come back. Now, notice there, I'm using a little body English there, and I'm, 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 uh, I'm making a request of you to allow me to finish before you jump in. I also am aware of your desire to jump in, and so I'm not going to you know, preach forever, I'm going to get my thing out and then let you come back, okay? And notice I am, in a kind of a subtle kind of way, getting your um, permission to do so. Right. Okay. So uh, that's the first step. And a lot of times that's all you need. Okay. And uh, they'll, oh, okay, yeah, 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 sorry. And if they just jump in again, uh, they can do the same thing. Wait, not quite done. And then you toss the ball back to them, and when it comes to you again, then they want to jump in again. Okay, wait a minute, Dan, it would be better if we dealt with one thing at a time, okay? That's, what you're bringing up is a separate issue. We can talk about that if you want, but let's just talk about this for the moment until you're satisfied, okay? 
that are right with you. That's all it is. Okay. The second move, say that doesn't work, and, they, and they're still obnoxious. And by the way, some won't even respond to the first because they're so obnoxious, right? So then you got to go to step two. First step is to stop them. The second step is to shame them. <laughs> And it is essentially the same substance of step one, but you are directly addressing the impolite behavior. Okay? This is going to be hard for some people to do. All right? So if you were the person, Dan, I'd say, I, 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 I'm not going to interrupt you because maybe you've interrupted me and blah, 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 blah. I got to wait for you to stop. And they say, Dan, um, can I ask you a favor? What's that? Well, you're raising some really important issues, but every single time that I try to respond, you interrupt me. Yeah. And I want to know if it's okay if you give me a chance to respond, and then I'll let you have your turn. Okay, so now that's more aggressive. It would be impolite to say that at first, but now after they've broken faith with you, or you've never been able to get in at all, um, then and notice all of these essentially are requests do you want to continue our conversation? And if you do, here's the rules. Right. And sometimes that can be even done quite aggressively. Uh, and I, I remember one time when I said, Bob, you know, I think, I don't remember his name actually now, very specific event. I said, and I pointed this out. I said, look, um, you, um, I pointed out that he's interrupting. I think I said, you know, every time I try to respond, you jump in and you walk all over me, okay? Um, now, here's the way I'd like to do it. You can ask your question, raise your issue. I'll listen. Then you will be polite and, and let me respond. And then when I'm done, it will be my turn to be reply, to polite, be polite, be polite. <laughs> and uh, listen to you. Is that okay with you? Because if it's not okay, then this conversation is over. All right. Now, these model conversations that I just offered are actually in the book. But you can see the second step of shaming them can be um, some can be more aggressive than others. And it just depends on the individual you're dealing with. But you are keeping your cool. You are not interrupting them. You're not being abusive. You're speaking to them as an adult. And you're saying this is not going to go on this way. Yeah. And that's because the principle underlying principle for the Christian is we are in charge of our side of the conversation. Yep. And if we don't want to continue, we don't have to. We don't have to suffer any abuse, okay? And if it's a group of people, by the way, sometimes you're overwhelmed by a group and uh, they're jumping all over you. And this is where you can say, well, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, this is a, you know, this is a, <laughs> this is a, a gang treatment here. How about this? I don't mind answering you guys, but I need to deal with one person at a time. Yeah. Will that work? Look at all the guys. If it doesn't work, then I'm not going to have this conversation. Right. It's okay. Okay, okay, first you stop them. If that doesn't work, then you shame them. If that doesn't work, then you leave them. No. Period. You know, Jesus said, don't throw what's holy to dogs. You know, if they're going to turn and tear you to pieces, you know, it's time to get out. Exit stage left kind of thing. And yeah, just, and I think, oh, okay, we're, this isn't working. I'll let you have the last word. And let them say the last thing, and then you cut it off. I think that's hard for a lot of Christians, especially a lot of uh, apolog apologists, uh, sort of like myself, because not necessarily... Uh, pride or ego gets in the way but the fact of just trying to give an argument on the side you yeah. know so as to be able to say you know what i don't have to say anything you don't want to give me the time of day i'm just going to zip my lip and walk away right 
you're not going to because yeah, like you said, uh, uh, we still need to have a great season with salt. You know, First Peter again, God tells us that we need to give a reason with meat. gentleness and reverence. Right, exactly. Everything. So uh, we're definitely doing a disservice to the kingdom if we do respond and and give what they're giving as well. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate you giving that advice as far as that's concerned, because I think a lot of times people are fearful of, oh, well, what if they attack me or have they done it before? And now I don't want to go ahead and talk again. Well, mm-hmm. if you employ some of these tactics, if again, you have something put in your toolkit, you have the ability to know how to respond and just exactly. try them. Exactly. So I want to talk, we're nearing the end. I want to get on to uh, Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses, but before we do, it's my belief that some false religions are more cultish than others. Like, for instance, I totally believe that Scientology uh, is definitely a cult. There are some religions out there that I don't necessarily would define as a cult, but just a, a false religion. Some are more mm-hmm. satanically influenced than others. I believe Islam is a satanically influenced religion based upon the anti-Semitism that is found within could you define in your own words, what do you believe a cult is? What are the characteristics of a cult in any examples? Well, I can give you something very general, um, and that is, this This is a term actually that's not used very much. It's fallen out of favor just because it's a, um, it's not just kind of politically incorrect, but it just, people hear it bad. You know, it's like saying, well, that person's crippled. Well, we don't say that anymore. You know, we say they have a disability, you know, and uh, it also can be misunderstood because you have, Actually, three definitions of cult. One is is one use of the word cult is a technical term, a term of art that is that has to do with certain aspects of any religious activity. So you have the religion of Islam or Hinduism or Christianity, and then you have the cult of worship there. And all that is meant to do is describe the patterns of worship characteristic of that particular religion. So it's completely uh, non. <clears throat> judgmental or non-negative or anything. It's just refer- referring to the, 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 you can have the cult of ISIS, you know, it's just a group of people who do these things to worship ISIS, you know, or whatever. Um, then we have what's considered a, uh, a religious cult or a cult of Christianity. And that is any particular group that holds the name Christianity in some sense, but denies some distinctive element of Christianity. All right, like the deity of Christ or the resurrection or uh, the Trinity or something like that. And in this case, what we have is a, a, a group that might be mistaken for Christianity by people who are not tutored. This would include LDS, our Mormon friends. This would include uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. This would include Christian scientists. These all use Christian language, but they're, they are really separate religions. They have classically been called cults because of their attempted identification with classical Christianity, even though their religious views are entirely different. And in fact, when it comes to Mormonism, this will shock some people. There is absolutely no kinship uh, theologically in any way, shape, or form between Christianity and, and Mormonism. I'm just pausing, trying to think, is there any particular doctrine that Mormonism holds to be true that we hold also as Christians? And the answer is no. Well, they don't they believe in heaven? Yeah, but they have a totally different understanding. What about uh, the cross? Yep, different understanding. Salvation? Different. Marriage? Totally different. You know, Jesus? He's a created being. God? There's lots of gods. Oh, so, so there's no intersection there, and it's been frustrating for me to see um, Mormons talk as if they're just Christians, 
because Joseph Smith didn't even believe that. And so that's deceptive coming from people who are committed to morality. So, um, so the third definition of cult is when you have groups of people that are gathered under a, um, uh, a, a, a charismatic leader and, and compels those people um, in odd ways, you know, as a power thing going on. And we think of, um, well, actually, it's not too recently. I'm trying to, in Waco, Texas, there was one uh, a cult that was going on there, and that ended tragically. And then the one down in Central America or South America, Jim Jones. Um, people ever heard the phrase, well, did you drink the Kool-Aid? You know, <clears throat> that's like the poison. Well, that comes from the Jim Jones thing. Those were cults, even though they had a religious tenor to them, there was not really much kinship or even attempt to identify with Christianity. It was a, let's get away by ourselves in our compounds, and we, we have the charismatic leader that hears from God, and, and there are all kinds of abusive behavior that go on behind there. So this is, the difficulty is, is when we have tried to say, well, um, Mormonism is a cult of Christianity, uh, then, then it's that third definition that kind of gets imposed or people think we're talking about this abusive environment when we're just talking theologically. The fact is, um, using the second definition, is, is that uh, Christianity was a cult of Judaism in the first century. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. It was a variation of the standard accepted thing. Now, right. on our theology, we'd say, well, it was real Judaism, and Judaism <clears throat> had changed so drastically there in the first century that yeah. that uh, um, they were not in line with God's purposes, which is why they rejected God's Messiah. But, I mean, to be fair, this is the way they looked at Christianity as a cult. Not necessarily aberrant behavior. The Christians were good, but they had aberrant theology based on the standard of the group at the time. Now, uh, I have done... Hang on one second. So I have done quite a bit of research personally whether it's research on, you know, the Book of Mormon. Yeah. What I found out is that Marriott's are owned, uh, operated by Mormons. The original individual was a Mormon. So if you're Who to is, go to a, what is operated? I missed the that. Marriotts. Oh, the Marriotts. Okay. Hotel. So if you were to go to a Marriott hotel, you look in the nightstand. As long as they've been restocked, yep. you'll find a Gideon Bible and a Book of Mormon. Not this right. one because my youth pastor got this one. It has a pro great price and doctrines and covenants. So anytime I go to a more uh, Marriott or a good friend of ours goes to the Marriott, I'm like, hey, bring me a Book of Mormon. Because the Book of Mormons I have, the less ones that are out there in the hands of other people. And just like the Gideons, they want people to take them, take them home, read them, yada, yeah. yada, yada. And so the same thing with the Jehovah's Witnesses and the New World yeah. Translations. With the old version, the newer version. And then you got the whole aspect of Mary Baker Eddy and Christian Science. And all these other things. So it's interesting because when you look into the LDS church, and I can see the LDS church in the second and the third definitions that you've mentioned, because when you're looking at uh, contemporary or mainstream Mormonism, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, they definitely stray from Orthodox Christianity. They, they don't believe in a biblical Jesus. They believe in three heavens. They believe in outer darkness. But even in their out-of-darkness view, it's more of a fear tactic still that they don't teach. They believe in Heavenly Father and Jehovah and uh, Jesus being our elder brother. But then when you get into uh, some of the little fringe sects of LDS, because you'll still have fundamental LDS, you'll have the Kingston clan and some of these polygamous groups. 
Right. The whole aspect of those is it's a power thing there within within those. Yeah, and those can take on cultic dimensions. Yeah. According to the third definition I offered, no question. Yeah. There. And uh, but this ties into my next question. I, I want to ask you two different religions witnessing methodology. I've been um, fortunate to witness to countless Mormons. Matter of fact, I'm engaged. I had a LDS member send me a friend request on Facebook and I was like, I don't even know this guy, no mutual friends. And that's why I was, I sent him a message and I was like, Hey, I think you said this inadvertently. And he was like, Oh, well, let's talk. I was like, well, maybe this wasn't inadvertent anymore. (laughs) We've been engaged and we've been talking for like the last week or so. I'm asking him questions. I'm trying to play the, the role of just getting intel on what he believes Mm-hmm. A lot of LDS members don't truly know what the LDS church teaches. Yeah, that's one of the things I understand. They they don't even understand their own doctrine, which is true with a lot of Christians, which is why they get taken in by groups like this. It is, unfortunately, but once you allow someone to reveal that early, early, early uh, LDS apostles taught that as God was, as man is, God once was, and as God right. is, man may become, and they teach exaltation, it some of them have never heard of it or collab, whatever the case is. But when I'm witnessing to a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness, I can try to point out all the contradictions between Scripture and the Book Mormon or the Joseph Smith translation or the Book Abraham's, whatever, or Joseph Smith himself. Or the I've asked one Mormon uh, if he believed in just the the aspect of their apostles and their prophets getting special revelation from God, and he did. So I was like, okay, what about... Uh, By the way, a lot of Christians believe that too, nowadays. They do, but so, I wanted to ask this guy... in our midst as well. Wilford Woodruff, back in the late 1800s, who was a prophet, said that God has established polygamy to last until the return of Christ. Mm-hmm. One year later, the same individual wrote a manifesto rescinding that and said polygamy no more yeah and so i asked the guy as far as the contradiction there as well and he doesn't give me a clear answer the whole point i'm trying to make is no matter how much i try to witness to these mormons and maybe it's putting stones in their shoes it's never seemed to be fruitful per se what have you witnessed many mormons and jehovah witnesses and if so what do you think the best way to witness to them yeah. because they don't even understand grace either right well and that's a, by the way an important observation and uh the answer is i have not witnessed a lot to mormons and jehovah's witnesses okay that's just not so much come up on my radar i have some but not a lot and um i think the uh is, with mormons i am just thinking they're, they're a little bit different um, I think Mormons are good-hearted people, and they are, and they 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 genuinely believe in virtue and virtuous things, um, and they're trying to do what's right according to their religion. I think Jehovah's Witnesses are are more, in a certain sense, significantly misled and are more militant. And they're well, all they're doing is knocking on doors and they're checking them off. You know, they, I don't think they care about people's salvation. I, this I never got this sense at all. So I just think there's a there's a different ele, different element there. And so I would rather talk to a Mormon than to Jehovah's Witness. And what I'd want to do is appeal to the heart concern that they're already. Um, manifesting or demonstrating. Um, now, Mormons, as you know, are very 
Um, well, uh, what's the right word? They're, they, they, are, they have been prepared to expect anti-Mormon persecution. True. Okay. And all that means is you disagree with them. You could be treating them really nice, but they're going to. So what I think we have to be especially careful of when talking to a Mormon person is not coming on too strong. And I have in the past, you know, I'm just saying. And um, and not coming on too strong, this is why the questions, I think, are really, really good um, means of navigating in those conversations. Not coming uh, on too strong, not coming on too dogmatic, um, but but drawing them out, okay? So that's one thing. Our manner has got to be softer and gentle. And <clears throat> you, you are clearly, you're probably better qu equipped to answer this question than I am because uh, you traffic in these, these uh, particular groups and their theology more than I have. But um, to me, the key issue in both groups, there's actually two key issues. One is the issue of authority. Mm -hmm. Who gets to say what God says? Right. Okay. And the second key issue is justification. Mm. What must I, it's the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Okay. And so if I were to focus in on one particular thing, <clears throat> I would focus in on the gospel and the grace of God. People do come out of the Jehovah's Witness group and become real Christians. Yep. It, it's not frequent, and it's a tough nut to crack, and a lot of those people still have a lot of problems afterwards. Yeah. But they do. I have friends that have come out of Jehovah's Witnesses. The way they came out of Jehovah's Witnesses was they learned about God's grace. Yeah. I mean, that's what transformed them. And people do come out of Mormonism. Yep. A lot of times they come out of Mormonism as a reaction to the straitjacket society they find themselves in, and then they go dark. They just leave. And eventually, when they hear the gra about the grace of God, as now non-Mormons, they come back and they embrace the grace of God. But I think it is the grace of God that is the most powerful message for either group, because in neither group is grace a genuinely operative principle. They do not understand grace the way Paul teaches grace, and that's what rescues us. That so that's is, what I would focus in on. That is completely accurate and everything, because when I'm talking to this individual and, and others like it, they have all the Christian vernacular, they have all the Christian sayings, they claim they read the Christian literature. They claim they believe in grace. But someone had told me this before, and I think I'm going to adopt it more, which is what you pointed out, is and part of it's leaving the stone in their shoes, is the fact of showing how they're not a religion of grace. Their grace is completely different. Because with their grace is the fact that they're striving to endure to the end. Like they asked this individual, what do you, tell me how do I get saved? How do I get eternal life? What must I do to be saved? Just like right. the Philippian jailer. Right. And uh, first he, he talks about, we're all saved. The fact that we're here, we were spirit children up there in heaven. We're here to go ahead and, and be tested and proved and get one of the three heavens. So essentially we're all saved. The only outer darkness are, are for those that had the light of LDS church and then reject Mormons. Ex-Mormons, exactly. in other words. Yes. That itself is manipulative, by the and way. And that's where part of it's cultic, in, in my view, too, with that third uh, definition also. And it's hard to walk that line. Right. But I asked this guy, okay, 
it, he pulls out the Articles of Faith in the Book of Mormon. They're actually a pro great price, which talks about you have to repent, have faith, you have to be baptized, you have to endure to the end, you have to give to the temple. I was like, if that's not works, I don't know how you're not going to see it. And so I've just started adopting, just keep talking about the grace, the grace that Jesus makes you free. That all you have to do is look and live. As Moses lift up the serpent in the wilderness, Christ is lifted up on the cross. Yeah, Romans 4, you know, for him who does not work but believes yeah. in a God who justifies the ungodly, to him it's reckoned as righteousness. Right. Exactly. And so it's my prayer that in these moments that because they're not receiving it then, but maybe it's just that stone in the shoe that they wrestle with in, in, in the still of the night at some time. So uh, I'm working with, I, I don't know if you know her, uh, Dr. Lynn Wilder. I think she's a author ministry of unveiling Mormonism. And she's actually an ex BYU professor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I recognize the name. Yeah. Working with her. And then another doctor who uh, is part of Ratio Christi, uh, who are both ex Mormons. And hopefully we're going to have uh, interviews with them coming up too, and really get the heart of it. But like you said, I definitely, it's gotta be the grace because they don't understand grace. But then again, like Jesus says, who do men say that I am? You know, right. that's the identity of the person and the work of Christ. That's the core. Yes. Really, it, it is. So um, but I, I have a feeling, you know, if people get grace right and they trust in Christ, then the Holy Spirit is a way of kind of correcting some of those other problems. You I know? believe so, too. Yeah. So because um, you can't I'm, I'm afraid my uh, I'm afraid my camera is going to fail here in a moment. Uh, <laughs> we're about done. But like you were saying, I, I don't think a six year old uh, child who got saved understands everything doctrinally. Right, right, right. God makes that up. But uh, that was actually the last. Any, the last thing, is there anything you would like to finish up, say, uh, as we end the interview? Well, I think that I already hinted at this, but um, things are going to get more difficult for Christians, okay? And, um, and it's important, I think, for Christians to stand up. Now, that means some are going to have to be more vocal than others, uh, that, or than they have been, uh, that they're going to have to stop doing some things that they have been doing that compromise um, their own convictions about Christ. They have to live a more holy life, you know, so that we're above reproach. People are going to find all kinds of things wrong with us, and not just our views, but our behaviors as well, yeah. okay? And we just have to tighten our belts. And when I say it's going to get harder, if you, there are some of you who are going to say in your business, I, I, am, I am in good, good conscience, I cannot submit to the indoctrination that you are requiring of me unless you allow me equal time to give a critique kind of thing. You know, but there's a lot of political indoctrination going on, and there's uh, things about that, that have to do with moral issues. Uh, and you talked about that, and you and I privately, just in just in your own, you know, your prior life kind of situation where you had to address some things and make some decisions. And Christians are going to have to do that. They cannot get away from that. They are not going to be able to do that. They are going to have a choice: Are they going to please the mob, or are they going to stand for Christ? And standing for Christ may cost them their livelihood. I'm just saying, it's already happening. This kind of thing is happening in this country right now. And it's really accelerated in the last 12 months. So um, I mentioned earlier, you know, make a decision now and I wanna encourage people to do that. Um, it hasn't cost me a lot to follow Christ. 
It hasn't, uh, you know, so I can't say, well, I'm doing it like I'm doing the best I can with what I'm faced with. It might be that I'm faced with much more difficult things in the future. And uh, by the grace of God, I'll stand tall. But I know all of us are going to be faced with more difficult choices in the future. And who are we going to side with? And in silence isn't always an option. Sometimes silence is wisdom. We're going to you're going to have to work through those things. But if everybody's silent, I mean, it was Martin Niemöller back in the, you know, in the, in the, in, in Germany in the, the uh, late 30s and early 40s, Lutheran pastor. Many have heard the quote about, you know, uh, well, they came for the Jews and I didn't do anything because I wasn't a Jew. And they came for the gypsies and I didn't do anything because I wasn't a gypsy. And they came for this, they came for that. And then they came for me. Mm. And there was nobody left, you know. Yeah. And so this, it, he spent, he survived uh, Nachau five years. He was a contemporary of, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, of, um, uh, I can't think of, think of his name. The other Lutheran pastor got executed, you know, but um, well-known guy. I just can't get the name right now. But in any event, the, the, these, you never know how bad it's going to get, but I guarantee you it's going to get a lot worse. Yeah. And it may be the soft totalitarianism where it's not the government that's enforcing all this radical political correctness, but it's the culture and all the, the elements of culture that are doing it. That's what's going on right now. Rod Dreher just published a book called Live Not By Lies, and I'm, I'm in the process of reading through that myself. And he's looking at communist countries in the past and, uh, and, 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 and talking to former communist dissidents who survived that and how they survived it. And uh, this is, I think, something we're facing more and more now. Christians need to stand tall. He's got practical terms there, but we can't live by lies. We can't, we can't affirm lies. Uh, and there's a lot of lies that are governing our culture right now. Yep. And it's going to make it diff difficult, like you said, for Christians to live their Christian convictions and, and with a message of love. You know, St. Francis of Assisi, uh, who said, uh, no amount of darkness in the world can extinguish the light from a single candle. Yeah. And uh, we're called to be the light on the hill. And so, I just pray that we can all do that and everything else. And you and I here are here for our brothers and sisters to help them do that, right? Well, I thank you for spending your time with us, uh, Greg. I know you're a very busy man, uh, praying for your rotator cuff. Uh, thank you. Recovery <laughs> and everything is good to see that it's getting healed on schedule. Yeah. And everything. Thank you yeah. for staying the reasons, ministry, and everything, and everything that you do. Uh, everybody else that's watching, just take everything to heart, take note, practical evangelism, reach the person, not the culture. And if you got any questions or anything, I'm going to have Stand to Reasons Ministries link on the bottom. You can reach out to them, check out the articles, their apps, as far as the tactics book. And what was the name of the other book you had? Uh, the Story of Reality. Story of Reality. And if you don't know that tactics book on Amazon is ranked as number two in evangelism and in the top 10 for Christian apologetics book. Mm. That, that is a fascinating read, so you got to check it out. So I uh, thanks for checking out. Until next time, God bless.